threw a bomb into the police ranks, who then opened fire on the unarmed crowd, creating a melee of blood and bullets. Within five minutes, the calamitous event was over. The calamitous event was the 1886 Haymarket Square Massacre, or the Haymarket Riot, depending on who you're talking to. As part of the virtual public event, Monumental Labor, Justice Denied, Injustice Remembered, Dr. Melissa DeBacchus examined the history of the 1886 Haymarket Square bombing earlier this year. Her online presentation in January 2022 traced efforts to commemorate the events from their immediate aftermath to today. What I love most about this presentation is the way that Dr. DeBacchus gets me to see these monuments with completely new eyes. The female figure stands in an assertive posture, displaying classicizing features and an uncompromising gaze. Dressed in a peasant's smock and apron, she exposes her muscular arms, which mark her as working class. In her left hand, the Haymarket figure grasps the laurel wreath, which she holds over the head of a supine male worker whose body is marked by signs of labor, death, and martyrdom. On Labor History in 2, we'll start with one from 1886 and end with this. The year was 1937. That was the day animators struck Fleischer Studios in New York City. I'm Chris Garlock, and this is Labor History Today. And before long, bodies from both sides cold Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1886. This was one of the most significant days in U.S. labor history. A mass meeting of workers was called for that night in Chicago's Haymarket Square. The purpose of the meeting was to protest the police brutality that had killed and injured strikers at the McCormick Reaper plant the day before. Rally organizers were part of the movement demanding an eight-hour day. The rally was much smaller than organizers had expected. Rain began to fall as the last speaker was finishing when an army of 200 policemen appeared demanding the meeting disperse. Someone, unknown to this day, threw a dynamite bomb into the ranks of the advancing police. In the confusion of the moment, police began firing their weapons indiscriminately into the dark. When the smoke cleared, police had killed at least four in the crowd and wounded many more. A total of seven policemen were killed. Most were killed by their own gunfire. In the aftermath of the event, unions were raided all across the country. The eight-hour movement was effectively derailed. Eight men were put on trial in Chicago. Some were not even present at the time the bomb was thrown. They were put on trial for their ideas. Four of the men, Albert Parsons, August Spees, George Engel, and Adolf Fischer, were sentenced to death by hanging. A fifth man, Louis Ling, died under mysterious circumstances in prison. The remaining three went to prison and were eventually pardoned by Illinois Governor Altgeld in 1893. Before he was hung, August Spees declared, The day will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you strangle today. 
His words prove true. The Haymarket Martyrs inspired and continue to inspire labor activists throughout the world. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. I'm going to hand things over to Dr. Melissa DeBacchus, who will be presenting on the Haymarket Martyrs Monument and other memorials linked to the memory of the Haymarket events. Thank you, uh, Emma and Eleanor, for organizing this event. Thank you, everyone, for coming. May 1st, 1886, brought general strikes in support of the eight-hour day throughout the nation, including the city of Chicago. On May 4th, near Haymarket Square on Chicago's west side, anarchists organized a protest meeting of roughly 3,000 people who supported the workers striking at the McCormick Reaper's Works. Albert Parsons, Samuel Fielden, and others calmly addressed the small crowd from the back of a hay wagon. Mayor Carter Harrison attended the meeting in support of the workers' rights of assembly and free speech. He departed at 10 p.m. as Parsons finished his speech, later attesting in his trial testimony to the peaceable nature of the gathering. When Fielden, the last speaker, began to address the crowd in the rain, between 200 and 300 people remained at the site. Soon thereafter, about 176 police carrying repeater rifles marched on the square in military formation. Led by Captain William Ward, who shouted, and I quote, I command you in the name of the people of the state of Illinois immediately and peaceably to disperse. Fielden, Fielden responded, and I quote, but we are peaceable. All right, we will go. At this moment, someone threw a bomb into the police ranks, who then opened fire on the unarmed crowd, creating a melee of blood and bullets. Within five minutes, the calamitous event was over. Most scholars believe that seven police and four workers had been killed, about 60 policemen had been wounded. According to eyewitness accounts, bullets rather than bomb fragments had caused most of the injuries. Among those police who died, only Matthias J. Deegan could be accounted as a victim of the bomb. An estimated 50 civilians lay dead or wounded on the streets. This event unleashed one of the fiercest attacks on anarchist dissidents in American history what has been called the first Red Scare. In Chicago, a state of martial law existed for two months. Police rounded up hundreds of radicals and activists, mostly immigrants. Not surprisingly, the national press was obsessed with the Chicago anarchists, linking labor unionism with radical politics and immigrant populations. The grand jury indicted eight men on charges of conspiracy, riot, and unlawful assembly. Albert Parsons, August Spies, Michael Schwab, Samuel Fielden, George Engel, Adolf Fischer, Oscar Niebe, and Louis Ling. Murder charges were suspect since the identity of the bomb thrower remained unknown. After a lengthy trial and appeals process, a guilty verdict was returned, and seven of the eight defendants were sentenced to death. Only Nebi was spared with a 15-year prison term of hard labor. The verdict and sentence shocked many across the country, 
and around the world. Despite requests for clemency from national and international notables, the extraordinary sentence stood. Two of the anarchists appealed for clemency, fielded in Schwab, and received life imprisonment. One committed suicide in prison, Ling, and four, Parsons, Spees, Ingall, and Fisher were executed on November 11, 1887, dubbed Black Friday by anarchists and sympathizers. As the four stood hooded at the gallows, August Spees' voice ran out, and I quote, the time will come when our silence will be more powerful than the voices you are throttling today. Followed by Fisher and Engel who cried out, hooray for anarchy. Parsons sang the Marseillaise. Seven years later, on June 26, 1893, Governor John Peter Altgeld of Illinois pardoned all eight anarchists concluding that every aspect of the trial was a shameless travesty of justice with an improperly selected jury and a biased judge. The Haymarket Martyrs Memorial commemorates the memory of the men who were tried and convicted uh, of conspiracy charges, as well as the worker struggle to achieve the eight hour workday. The Pioneer Aid and Support Association founded in 1887 pledged to support the families of the martyrs, and in 1890 purchased eight lots in Waltheim, now Forest Home Cemetery, and Forest Park, Illinois, to house a memorial. In 1892, the German immigrant Albert Weiner was commissioned to produce the sculpture. Installed in 1893, it consists of a 16-foot granite shaft supported by a two-stepped base, against which are positioned two life-size bronze figures. On the step below is inscribed the words spoken by Spies while on the gallows. On the back of the monument are engraved the names of the martyrs, Spies, Fisher, Parsons, Ling, and Engel. A bronze plaque lists the names of Schwab, Niebe, and Fielden. The unveiling of the monument took place on Sunday, June 25th, 1893 with great ceremony. 3,500 supporters were in attendance. Buried nearby are 62 historical figures who dedicated their lives to the pursuit of social justice. Lucy Parsons, wife of Albert Parsons, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, and Emma Goldman, to name only a few. These grave sites have come to be known as the dissenters' graves. The bronze figures face eastward evoking the dawning of a new day for labor. The female figure stands in an assertive posture, displaying classicizing features and an uncompromising gaze. Dressed in a peasant's smock and apron, she exposes her muscular arms, which mark her as working class. She was variously identified with the figures of liberty, justice, anarchy, or revolution. For example, in Ferdinand Freiligrath's poem, Revolution, a female figure personifies the notion of revolution and may be a possible source for this sculptural figure. Consistently labeled as defiant at the time, she recalls the powerful image of liberty and Delacroix's liberty leading the people, who forcefully strides into the viewer space during the 1830 revolution in Paris. In her left hand, the Haymarket figure grasps a laurel wreath, which she holds over the head of a supine male worker, 
whose body is marked by signs of labor, death, and martyrdom. The male worker reclines on a slightly raised bier behind the female. His head thrown back and revealing an elongated neck rests upon a pillow. His eyes are closed. Middle-aged with ideal features, he is bearded and mustachios. His left arm drops down near the female's left foot, resting his hand palm up. The female skirt shields half the worker's torso, cascading between his legs and modestly concealing his groin. His tense and muscled right leg supports a clenched fist, a symbol of defiance barely visible from behind the standing figure. The overall awkwardness of the body, extended neck, and listless posture of the head suggests the horrors of death by hanging. His strong muscled arms and legs reveal the power of manual labor. The posture, scale, and gesture of the body reference the martyrdom of Christ as seen in these Renaissance masterpieces on the screen. In proportions similar to Michelangelo's Pieta, the worker appears diminutive in contrast to the breadth of the female figure. Moreover, the angle of the head, the position of the legs, and the sweep of his fallen arm suggest a close association with images of the deposition, as we see in Raphael's Deposition of Christ. Thus, in its Christian associations, the body of the dead worker educes the memory of martyrdom of the four executed anarchists and produced an image both inspirational and commemorative. Hosting memorial ceremonies, serving as a gathering spot for political meetings and a destination for personal pilgrimages, the monument remains a contested site in the history of American radical politics. The Chicago anarchists themselves believed in an armed insurrection to overthrow the capitalist state at the same time that they believed in the revolutionary potential of labor and the labor movement, what is today known as the Chicago idea. The Pioneer Aid and Support Society held annual meetings at the gravesite. To this day, tensions between such groups as the Illinois Labor History Society, who inherited the deed to the monument from the Pioneer Aid and Support Association, and contemporary anarchists run high as the Labor History Society emphasizes the legacy of labor, while the anarchists memorialize the radical activity of armed insurrection. Over the years, anarchists continues to disrupt ceremonies planned by the Labor History Society and Waltime Cemetery. To be sure, only a small number of monuments commissioned by the interests of labor, either radical political organizations or labor unions, commemorate resistance as a form of public memory. In so doing, they bring to life histories often erased by official repression and provide spaces, both ideological and physical, in which labor communities produce collective memories and memorialize historical struggles. As we have seen, a wide array of groups from traditional labor organizations to fringe anarchist factions lay claim to the Haymarket legacy by utilizing the site for public assembly and invoking the image of the monument as a symbol of labor's heritage. In 1997, 
the Haymarket Martyrs Monument gained official memorial status as a national landmark. Commemorating the police forces that participated in the Haymarket Fair is the police memorial, now called the Protectors of Chicago Memorial, sculpted by Johannes Gellert. This monument presents an image of an officer in contemporary dress, holding one arm up in the air, signaling halt. Dedicated in 1889, this sculpture invests the police officer with dominion over law and order and inscribes notions of authority through gesture and costume. Since its dedication in 1889, it has been the site of repeated ideological conflict. Desecrated, smashed by a runaway trolley, twice bombed, relocated on several occasions, the monument was rededicated on June 1st, 2007, and now stands outside police headquarters on South Michigan Street. Both sculptures must be studied in concert within the context of the Haymarket hysteria. These specific historical conditions gendered the forces of law and order as masculine, and consequently, I would argue, the unruliness of anarchy as feminine. For example, a contemporary image entitled Justice Hurling a Bomb, a hint to our citizens from the Chicago Graphic News, posited the unruly forces of anarchism as feminine and the power of civil authority as male. Anarchy is pictured as a female figure with long disheveled hair and closed eyes, hurling a bomb labeled law into a crowd of men, some of whom hold pistols and flee the impending explosion, a not so subtle warning against the dangers of mob rule. The female figure parodied the allegorical image of justice, typically represented as an ideal feminine form in classical garb and at times holding a crystal orb, as in Edward Simmons's 1893 mural Justice in the Criminal Courts Building in New York City. A near facsimile of the police monument appeared in the background of this graphic and attempted to reassert control over civil chaos. Thus, this image articulated the gender terms of the historical conflict between the forces of order, symbolized by the police officer, and those of social disruption, signified by anarchy. Yet another monument to the memory of the Haymarket Affair was erected in 2004 in Haymarket Square. In 2002, the Illinois State Legislature provided funding for a commemorative park dedicated to the right of free speech. The Chicago Police Department and the Illinois Labor History Society joined forces to plan for the memorial at the Haymarket site. In an interesting turn of events, the police department, now unionized, identified themselves with the labor movement. Needless to say, contemporary anarchists were not consulted. The new monument designed by Mary Broger depicts workers constructing a wagon and an anonymous figure atop the platform, representing the speakers at the Haymarket rally. In a highly stylized visual vocabulary, the sculpture stands as a symbol of free assembly and free speech, albeit in a very sanitized fashion with only an oblique reference to the Haymarket martyrs. Any radical critique of the government uh, and industrial capitalism is erased from the site. 
As a compromise monument, its imagery is a palatable statement, erasing evidence of police malfeasance, as well as a corrupt legal system, not only evident in the era of the Haymarket events, but also in the era of Dred and Harriet Scott, and also in today's Black Lives Matter movement. All these monuments participate in the growing fields of heritage studies, social memory, the public history of labor, and new working class studies. Remembering the complicated history of the United States and presenting it to the general public only strengthens American democracy. Recognizing that the construction of social memory is a highly contested process, the National Park Service helps to memorialize such contentious events through invoking national landmark status, as well as maintaining other such labor sites as the Pullman National Monument outside of Chicago. In the case of the Haymarket Martyrs Memorial, this commemorative artwork serves an important function in this process, making visible the activity of memory. Thank you very much. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1937. That was the day animators struck Fleischer Studios in New York City. It was the industry's first strike. Creators of Popeye the Sailor Man and Betty Boop were fed up with working conditions at Fleischer. They were sick of the long hours, low pay, no paid sick leave, or even vacation time. Some had worked years without a day off. As well, they resented having to ask permission to use the bathroom. Animation workers wanted better working conditions and medical insurance. Two animators had recently died of tuberculosis, and workers linked their deaths to poor ventilation in the studio. They had been trying to organize with the commercial artists and designers union for over a year. Two leading animators were fired for union activity a month earlier, and another 13 were fired when the union approached the studio, demanding their reinstatement, union recognition, wage increases, and benefits. In his book, Drawing the Line, Tom Cito writes that picketers were soon marching on Broadway singing, We're Popeye the Union Man. We'll fight to the finish because we can't live on spinach. One picket sign read, I make millions laugh, but the real joke is my salary. Strikers received support from the Screen Actors Guild. The Musicians Union refused to provide soundtracks for the studio, and many union projectionists refused to show Fleischer cartoons across the country. The AFL organized a boycott of Paramount Pictures, which financed the studio, and area longshoremen frequently joined the picket lines. After five months, the studio finally caved, granting the strikers' demands. But the victory was short-lived. Fleischer made moves to relocate to Florida within a year, in part to bust their union. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show. For more information, go to laborhistoryin2.com. To Chicago's Haymarket Square, the workers, they came. They marched all around the country, everywhere it was the same. We're not working 16 hours. That's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. Please help more folks find the show by liking it in your podcast app and passing it along. It's also really helpful if you leave a review. 
The Haymarket Martyrs Monument Past, Present, Future was part of Monumental Labor, a three-part public event series that explored the memory of work and working peoples in national parks through their representation in monuments and memorials. The series was organized by NPS Mellon Humanities Fellows Dr. Eleanor Mahoney and Dr. Emma Silverman and was made possible by the National Park Service in part by a grant from the National Park Foundation and the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. The presentation by Dr. DeBacchus has lots of great visuals. We've got a link to it in the show notes. Music today was by Jay Kulstad from his song, Haymarket Massacre. Thanks also to Labor History in Two, a partnership between the Illinois Labor History Society and The Rick Smith Show, a labor-themed radio show out of Pennsylvania. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. The Labor History Today team includes Ben Blake, Patrick Dixon, Leon Fink, Sherry Lincoln, Joe McCartan, Evan Papp, Jessica Pozak, and Alan Weirdak. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening, keep making history, and see you next time.